0: Ladies and gentlemen, September 28th, 2023, I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative, and I don't make much secret about it on this podcast. I like to explore the concept of woke, this obsession with race, ethnicity, gender identity that has taken hold of America over the past 10 years. I also don't make much of a secret about it that I think this to be a bad thing. I think this to be a net negative. It is not added to human flourishing. It is not increased happiness or uh, improved uh, relationships amongst people in this country uh, through the exploration of these identity issues. One person who has written about this extensively, who I will be interviewing in just a moment, is a guy named Richard Hanania. He wrote a book called The Origins of Woke. Some people, including Elon Musk, have promoted the book. I uh, believe it's very interesting And a lot of people Seem to be agreeing with that Because it's an Amazon Number one bestseller In a number of categories Other people don't look So kindly upon it uh, For instance The Atlantic called it A Trojan horse For white supremacy Obviously a very Controversial figure A very controversial book um, But we're going to explore it We're going to see And make up your own mind Decide for yourself Is this a sensible exploration and explanation of What is woke And why it has taken hold In America so so aggressively um, Or is this just a dog whistle for white supremacy make up your own mind and that chat with Richard is going to be coming up shortly Um, on that topic one of the other figures who has played prominently in the world of woke over the last 10 years is a guy named Ebron at least refers to himself as Ebron Kendi X Um, he was originally born Henry Rogers he's come to prominence as the author of a book called how to be an anti-racist it was a 2020 New York Times bestseller and this is the type of guy who now you know was marginalized nobody ever really paid much attention to him before about 2015-16 and is a guy now that it pretty much informs the the racial policies and the understanding of these issues and uh, uh, anti-racist trainings and uh, uh, throughout all of academia and corporate America gets paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for programs and for speaking. And he recently came up on some controversy himself and and in many ways I believe has been exposed as the grifter that he is. So let's look into who he is and what recently uh, was exposed about him this past week. Um, One once again, born Henry Rogers, was a, a really unremarkable student. I believe it was uh, revealed he got 1,000 on his SATs when the scoring rubric was 1,600. He graduated from Florida a and University in 2005, 2008 to 2012. He was an assistant professor of history at State University of New York, Oneonta. Um, and then at SUNY Albany till about 2015. None of these particularly distinguished academic institutions. Um, then 2015, he wins a National Book Award for nonfiction uh, for a book called Stamped from the Beginning, uh, explores the history of racism through a number of historical figures. Can't really comment on that because I can't say that I've read any of it, but he received the National Book Award. Um, obviously, we believe in one of the other notions that I explore on this podcast is how these credentials and these institutions no longer are relevant. They're no longer a value. Valuable credential, but he got the National Book Award. So, okay, maybe he has something to say. 2000, uh, 2020, the so called racial reckoning around George Floyd and uh, a lot of matters that had been percolating from the Black Lives Matter movement. He released How to Be an Anti-Racist, and that book just takes off. That becomes a New York Times bestseller. He becomes one of the high priests of woke, one of the high priests of racial and ethnic issues in this country that everybody has to go to for wisdom and insight and input on matters of racism, prejudice, and racial relations. Um, so just back up just a second and look at the trajectory of this. Um, in 2020, you know, we know we all have a grasp and we can sort of remember what has occurred over the past three years. But what a lot of people forget is what racial relations were like until this supposed, as Matt Iglesias calls it, the great awakening this period where uh, as Iglesias says, most liberals and then in fact in fact most centrists and, and everybody else as well have shifted radically in one direction in terms of their views on racial relations because if you go look, people memory hold this through the 2000s and the early 2010s all polls from all all racial categories not just white people, not just latino people, asians, blacks, everybody had a more positive view of racial relations. If you look at a poll, there was a poll from 2000, 2012, halfway through the Obama administration after the first Obama term, and literally every group had over had net positive uh, feelings, sentiments about racial relations in America. Everybody, every category had over 50% believing that the essentially most of our racial problems had been solved not all of them but you know we had gotten rid of uh, of legal discrimination it had kind of become taboo to be publicly discriminating people or showing prejudice based on a person's uh, underlying characteristics uh, the executive class of america had become far more diverse it had been proven that uh, anybody could could find financial success in essentially any field regardless of their underlying characteristics and everyone felt pretty good about racial relations a lot of people will tell you that this is simply this was an illusion that this was fabricated And I'm sorry, but it's not. That was true. We had mostly come to to some sort of truce around most racial issues. Uh, We still wanted to be vigilant in monitoring actual racism um, and make sure that that was something that was was adequately and properly punished when it was exposed in you know polite society. But once again, don't don't take my word for it. Go look at the polls from the late 2000s and early 2010s. Every ethnic category felt good overall about racial relations. Um, a, Pew, uh, a Pew Center study in 2014 said once again. Every ethnic category uh, believed that there re- wasn't really any legal or policy based changes that America still had left uh, in order to redress for past discrimination. They said, you know something, we've had affirmative action for 30, 40 years. Um, we obviously, once again, need to stamp out the specific acute instances of racism. But generally, we, you know, American racial relations are, are in a good place. Oh boy! Uh, From 2014 on, did that change? Every every poll on these topics. Uh, shows completely different results from pretty much 2014 on. Uh, nobody feels good about racial relations. That America had gotten to a place where it didn't necessarily need policy changes to uh, to for redress of past discrimination. I mean, all all the the feelings and the sentiments on that completely shifted, and uh, essentially the entire tenor of the conversation since 2014 roughly has been that America is one big boiling cauldron of prejudice. Um, I don't believe that to be true. However, that is what is kind of infested. Uh, Elon Musk might call it the woke mind virus, but that has infested the public discourse and the hostility around racial, ethnic, and identity issues has just been fuming since 2014. So the exploration of woke is why is that? What was the trigger and and, and how to, how is it manifest? What is the cause and how is it manifesting? But regardless of of what it what, what its causes were, Ibram Kendi became one of the high priests of this movement. Um his book How to Be an Anti-Racist and his uh his essentially theology How to Be an Anti-Racist has three basic precepts. One, all racial disparities are due to discrimination. All, not some, all. Like, as a fact, like, inherently, if you see a racial disparity, it means that there's discrimination. As he said, when I see, as Ibram said, when I see racial disparities, I see racism. What he also said, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. He's actively advocating for discrimination. His belief is that you have to, even in 2015, 16, 17, God knows what, uh, in order to address And redress Jim Crow you have to actively essentially anoint a similar version of Jim Crow in the opposite direction to discriminate against any group who might have discriminated against others previously although I don't know where that really leaves him in terms of figuring out how to treat uh, Latino groups Asian groups white subgroups like the Jews I don't really know you know his scholarship his logic doesn't really account for those uh, those subgroup divisions but it really didn't seem to bother him because he simply he pretty much threw this out as gospel and nobody really questioned him. He also said that all human interactions are either anti-racist or racist. If you're not actively anti-racist, you are racist. So just going about your business, living your life in a moral, generous, compassionate way, that's not enough. If you just do that and you're not actively trying to alter whatever, whatever societal system happens to be in place that might uh, yield disparate results amongst various arbitrarily designed ethnic groups, you are actively being racist. These were the three key precepts of his scholarship and people bought this people thought that this was these were actually good ideas that they were smart that they were moral that they were a, a shrewd understanding and explanation of the way the world worked. I got to be honest I don't really agree with that. I think it is at best uh, dehumanizing indoctrination and at worst pseudo intellectual drivel. Um, I never had any experiences with uh, Mr. Kendi, but I can tell you that a, a lot of CEOs that I know, because once again, it became uh, kind of a, a part of uh, part and parcel to being a uh, running a big corporation that you had to integrate this person's learnings. A lot of CEOs that I know got on the phone with Kendi um, and these CEOs were people who might have been originally more receptive to his beliefs and his teachings and having him. Be you know the the kind of Pope of racial relations and every one of them said oh my god I cannot believe how stupid this guy is he's an incredibly unimpressive person And he's simply he's simply an intellectual lightweight that was their experience with him to a t, every one of them And once again, these are people who do not have any pre-existing dislike of him or his his ideas They thought his ideas just from hearing them might actually be good, but he came off as very unimpressive uh, so um, also beyond he got a lot of funding 2020 Jack Dorsey former Twitter founder Jack Dorsey a- a Ayahuasca advocate was sitting on a beach somewhere in Costa Rica Thinking about how he could improve the world and said you know something I'm gonna give 10 million dollars to Ibram Kendi and he gave him 10 million dollars a lot of that funding or maybe all of that funding went to a Boston University institution called the Center for anti-racist research in 2020 They hired Ibram Kendi to lead that center um, And uh, this was supposed to be the center that was gonna produce all the great scholarship Take the ideas in the How to Be an Anti-Racist book, uh, funnel all that money towards Kendi through that and produce all this incredible scholarship in support of his ideas and how to make the world anti-racist as opposed to simply not racist uh, or or operating on the principles of color blindness, as opposed to uh, color forwardness in which you are, uh, in fact, as you said, discriminating currently in order to redress past discrimination. So that's what happened in 2020, and this is center has been uh, been active for about about three years let's see what happened three years later after at least 43 million in grants and gifts and what sources say has been an underwhelming output of research the center for anti-racist research laid off almost all of its staff last week 43 million dollars they produced no scholarship nothing not a single paper they literally incinerated $43 million. It's an absolute disaster. They've laid off their entire staff, complaints from multiple high-level employees, leaving suddenly allegations of a workplace culture of fear and retaliation and discrimination. Uh, most of the employees were speaking out. One of his top executives, one of Kendi's top executives there, Philippe Copeland, uh, in fact, mentioned in a, in, a screed, in a scathing screed on Facebook against the center and against Kendi that uh, these layoffs were instances of economic violence and trauma. I guess that's the new—that's the new standard that uh, the, the Kennedys of the world and the anti-racists of the world have implemented. That firing someone who is doing the work of anti-racism is, in fact, an uh, instance of economic violence and trauma. Um, so, yeah, they they blew through forty million forty-three million dollars, laid off their staff. Kennedy's on leave. Staff members claim the center prioritized fundraising over research. Kennedy even told the staff the model of the center is not financially sustainable, and most of their major financial backers have announced they'll no longer support the center. And I don't want to say this validates a lot of my early assumptions about Kendi and this entire anti-racist movement But I'm going to go ahead and say this validates a lot of my assumptions about Kendi and this anti-racist movement This was a grift from the beginning okay it's vet, you cannot blame people from engaging in schadenfreude and as spencer claven said in the spectator the delicious failure of ibram's racial grift cuz that's what it was the he essentially took advantage of the circumstances around george floyd to bilk a lot of guilty white people out of their money and then i don't wasted the money i don't know it might be in his an offshore bank account uh, he might have a bunch of cars in his garage i'm not necessarily where i don't necessarily know where the money went but what i can tell you is the money didn't go anywhere to help anyone or uh, uh, forward Humanity or towards justice or any Other honorable or admirable cause Whatsoever um and Some people might say well this is just One grifter this is not this is not indicative Of every movement that might be proclaimed Woke but mm, it seemed to be Quite indicative of a lot of what's going on because This keeps on happening so regardless Of how the failures of this movement have manifested Through Ibram Kendi and the Center for Anti-racist research or whatever we Still need to get down to the bottom of the matter which Is what first off what is woke How did this all develop uh Rich Richard Hanania believes a lot of it can be traced back to the overreach and the poor drafting and the poor interpretation of civil rights legislation, which started with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and then got layered on through a variety of other uh, of other policy, a number of court rulings. And he believes that exploring that really un- unveils or exposes or explains the mystery of how this woke thing came to dominate American society, of how a guy like Ibram Kendi raises $43 million and just incinerates it into two and a half years under the guise of solving America's racial problems. So Richard and I explore all of that coming up in just a second. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break.
1: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive.
0: When issuing a landmark ruling on the definition of obscenity, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart remarked that I know it when I see it. That's how many people feel about woke, a catch-all term that has arisen as a stand-in for the societal transformation around race, gender, sexuality, and identity issues that has colored the last decade of American life. In response, a large body of work has developed around defining and explaining woke, what is it, and why has it seemingly triumphed through culture and institutions. One scholar who has taken on the task of answering that is Richard Hunania in his book, The Origins of Woke, Civil Rights Law, Corporate America, and the triumph of identity politics. The book has received applause from figures as notable as Elon Musk and predictable criticism from the legacy media, including the Atlantic, which referred to it as the Trojan horse for white supremacy. Richard, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Glad to be here, man. I'm glad you mentioned uh, that Atlantic endorsement. That's very important to me. God bless the Atlantic endorsement. And uh, they
0: took the low hanging fruit with the Trojan horse trope. Um, So, and I know this is a bit of a tedious exercise, but is necessary for this type of discussion. The question that always pops up, what is woke? The, those who on the woke side of the aisle love to try to pose
1: that one as a gotcha. I think it's actually pretty easy to
0: answer. So I'm going to give you my definition and I've seen yours, but would love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, So woke making identity category, the primary lens through which life and its decisions are viewed and made while applying an absurdist bad faith level of sensitivity around identity related issues, plus selectively explaining differences in group results with uh, the explanation being oppression.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's something to that definition. Um, I don't think it has to be the primary lens, identity politics. You could be woke and have woke be on the back burner. You could be a communist and right and just care about economic redistribution, but also be woke because you also believe in affirmative action. So you're not making, uh, you know, race the, uh, you know, primarily. And then when you say you know, absurdist and bad faith, yeah, me and you agree that that's you know how they argue. They're not very you know convincing. Uh, you know, I try to go for something more more neutral. Um, and so yeah, it's important to define your terms, not just so when they ask you a gotcha question, you know, you're not caught off guard, uh, but also as a social scientist and I want you know have a you know a thorough um analysis of the phenomenon you know it's important to define your terms yeah, uh, so I say there's three pillars, right? Uh, there's the idea that disparities cause, uh, are caused by discrimination. As you, your definition applied, they're very selective, right? It's men uh, versus women. Uh, men doing better than women or whites doing better than non-whites. Um, that speech has to be restricted in, in favor of overcoming these disparities. And finally, you need a bureau- bureaucracy. You need institutions uh, in order to enforce one and two to try to overcome disparities and restrict speech uh, towards that purpose. So I think you got that. I think that's a pretty neutral definition. I think it covers most of what people talk about about.
0: And would you say that the focus of your scholarship or this book, which we're going to get to in a minute, does somewhat focus on the bureaucracy portion of the b- bureaucracy prong?
1: To a large extent, yes. There's these... Ideas, there's these uh, legal doctrines that, and they often had uh, sometimes intended, sometimes unintended consequences of creating bureaucracy. Uh, you could trace that bureaucracy. You know, I have a chapter where I show that the HR profession takes off in the aftermath of the civil rights laws um, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and then, yeah, universities, it's, you know, even more direct, the federal government during the Obama administration in particular, coming to them and saying you have to uh, hire these kind of Title IX coordinators and stuff. And yeah, the bureaucracy, I mean, people just see the bureaucracy and they, they pop up everywhere. And, you know, people see that they're often crazy. Like, why are, why is every institution, you know, uh, employing in HR, you know, HR people and DEI people? And, you know, the book, I think, tries to, you know, explain something that people might find mysterious.
0: No doubt. And as we mentioned before, most of the, nor- let's call it the normies out there, are uh, of the uh, I know it when I see it approach, right? They're not people who aren't thinking quite as much and as broadly about it or as deeply about it as you and I are. It's starting to bother them. They might've come around to noticing it a little uh, a little after you and I did, but now they're sitting around waiting. Okay, I know it when I see it, I can't necessarily define it, but we don't, ne- We th- our, our thesis is there is some explanation. I think our, our thesis uh, uh, certainly intersects in a couple ways in, in conflicts and conflicts in a couple others. Once again, like I said, we're gonna get to the specifics of that in your book. Um, the second piece to defining this though, I do believe needs to be understanding or acknowledging or rebutting the case for the great awakening And the whole notion of the great awakening is this notion of woke, began in earnest and took over at a rapid rate. Um, Some people, you know, there's, there's variety on when people peg as the start. Some people call it 2011 or 12. Some people put a little later 2014, 15. Nevertheless, that this has taken over culturally, has become culturally dominant over the last call it eight to ten years, you know, depending on where you fall in that pegging that start date. Uh, Matt Iglesias, who's actually a progressive writer, uh, coined the term, well, he might not have coined it, but he wrote kind of the seminal piece describing the great Awakening. and here's how he described it. Around 2011, we see a major increase in terms related to race, gender, sexual orientation, and left-wing ideas about the causes of group differences. For all the attention paid to the politics of the far right in the Trump era, the biggest shift in American politics is happening somewhere else entirely. In the past five years, and once again, he wrote this in 2000. 19. So he's referring to the start date in 2014. White liberals have moved so far to the left on questions of race and racism that they are now on these issues to the left of even the typical black voter. This change amounts to a great awakening, comparable in some ways to the enormous religious foment in the white North in the years before the American Civil War. It began roughly with the 2014 protests in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, what do you think about the notion of the great, uh, great awakening? Um, your thoughts on where it started um, and how your book may or may not address that start and why it has been th- this unique groundswell in this period
1: yeah i mean the question with the great awakening is a thing i mean uh matt's uh article in vox was based on the research of uh uh my friend uh, zach goldberg um and you can trace the numbers you could see like the percentage of you know the how much how often they the newspapers use, use terms, terms like, this, like discrimination yeah i mean it just goes up like crazy all these terms right total um, honest you know, yeah and anyone who um, anyone who uh, you know anyone who pays attention to the media just saw it with the eyes. I mean, two thousand five. You didn't have like everything is racist. You know, eating lunch is brushing your teeth is sexist. I Did mean, you just, ever I,
0: hear the term white privilege before two thousand uh,
1: twelve? I can't remember, but yeah, it's a new. I mean, we heard racism, but it was just there was just you know racism or bigotry. Sure, but have, no
0: one would ever impute. Never, no one would ever ex- expressly include the insinuation or the the the. The skin color coding in the term, uh, whether white supremacy was around, but it was thrown around a a lot less judicious, a a lot more judiciously and the notion of white privilege. I mean, nobody talked about white privilege before 2012. Yeah, yeah.
1: Or, you know, whiteness. Yeah, you didn't bring attention. Yeah, you tried to right before that there was sort of like okay you could talk about blacks and you could talk about racism and you could talk about you know discrimination people face but you didn't yeah you didn't personalize it it was sort of whites who were sort of ignored they were in the background uh it became a sort of more aggressive towards sort of i guess calling out uh whiteness itself and white people uh around socially acceptable to do so 2012. yeah exactly um And so, yeah. And so The Great Awakening, I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely a thing. Um, It's a related concept to, you know, what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the origins of woke and sort of the development of American society since the 1960s. Um, And I think that like, you know, but a lot of the things that people attribute to The Great Awakening, they were there long before it, like the idea that, you know, tests are... Discriminatory or anything is discriminatory if it has a disparate impact, if whites do better than blacks. Uh, You know, people sometimes, you know, they think, they seem to think that that's a new idea. It just came in the last five or 10 years or so. Uh, No, it's it's a 1971 court decision. Um, And a lot of these, you know, debates over like tests are racist. Oh, universities need diversity. Uh, Oh, you know, like uh, economic disparities or disparities in crime rates are something that uh, government needs to correct. Those have been there. Those have been so embedded in American law uh, for the last six, 60 years and so what happened with the Great Awakening um, is the way we we talk about these. It's become first more extreme, like it's applied to more areas of life, um, and then the way we talk about it and sort of the salience we put on it has gone through the roof. And that you know that deserves an explanation. Someone could write an entire book probably on just the Great Awakening itself. Uh, so there were related phenomena. I see Great Awakening as sort of the tail end, extreme uh, sort of culmination of the other things that I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm.
0: No doubt. And that's kind of where we both we, we kind of align and collide. And we're going to circle back to that in just a moment. But I want to be able to talk about what what is a thesis and uh, and the ideas that are laid out in your book. Um, so you mentioned that it's a practice. Essentially, you call your book a, pr- a practical guidance on how to undo the damages of civil rights law. Um, and you mentioned that before. Wokeness was a cultural phenomenon. It was just law. And when you notice that what uh, when you notice what most people call wokeness seem to be just the long overdue cultural manifestation of assumptions and beliefs that have been deeply embedded in American law for over half a century.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, that's yeah, that's what I'm trying to get through to people like you're noticing this now, but it's been there for a while and it's been doing terrible damage to American institutions for a long time
0: so let's go into those laws themselves one that you note and probably is the, the the seed that was originally planted from this garden that sprouted up was the civil rights act of 1964.
1: yeah exactly so what the civil rights act does and what people thought it was going to do um, was eliminate jim crow discrimination mm-hmm. right like southern states have white you know restaurants and black restaurants or different sections of the and earth.
0: everybody can look back on that and see it as a wrong see it is as as something that may have needed to be addressed legally
1: Yes. And then they went a step further than that. People also knew that they were going to tell private business what to do, which was controversial before uh, Kennedy's assassination. Um, that you know, A few years before, like a lot of people's opinion, was that the federal government shouldn't be telling private businesses what to do with their private businesses. Right. Uh, but they were going to you know, get rid of intentional discrimination in the private sector, too. Um, the idea of disparate impact was uh, was discussed and rejected, explicitly rejected. And people can uh, see the history there in the book. Uh, and then, and the, so, real quick, uh,
0: let's just define, it, because I th- I do think disparate impact is an entire separate prong of your argument. But let's let's define what disparate impact is for for the audience.
1: Yeah. So disparate impact is the idea that if one group does better than the other on anything related to hiring, it can be, uh, and it doesn't have to be hiring. You know, it could be law enforcement. Um, one group d- uh, does does uh, does better than another. It must be. You know, there's a presumption created that it's discrimination as the cause,
0: right? And that you can uh, assume discrimination due to the results as opposed to
1: the intent. Exactly. Yeah. Intent doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, there's a, like in a business sense, there's a the the presumption becomes that there's something wrong here and the burden becomes on the employer to show, you know, which is very expensive and hard to show that this is a, you know, there's a business necessity for what they're doing. Right. Um and so this, you know, everyone knew what this idea was. People, you know, there was a case in Illinois where the state uh, civil rights, uh, you know, the C- civil rights office had basically uh, interpreted the law this way. There was a standardized test of black men, didn't, or not a standardized test, an employment test at uh, Motorola. And um, this was in the news uh, while the Civil Rights Act was being debated. And basically, Washington saw the story coming out. Illinois was covered in the New York Times. And people said, no, 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 that's not what the Civil Rights Act uh, is going to do. That's that's crazy. Right, the New York Times thought it was crazy at the time. Uh, the Democrats who were and the Republicans too who voted on the Civil Rights Act uh, thought that was crazy. Now, like the Civil Rights Act passes, and then in 1971, the Supreme Court agrees with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that actually disparate impact is part of the law. Right? I mean, you know, every honest person who looks at the history, the uh, legislative intent knows that's not the case. Even so, even a liberal, uh, some liberal jurists have, have done so. Um, but say whatever, you know, they have their own reasons for interpreting law the way they view. Um, and so that, you know, that is a, uh, you know, that's a, um, a doctrine. That's, creep right there. Massive it's, mission it, creep. It's, it's wrecked havoc, everything, law enforcement, school discipline. They've applied it to Title VI. They've applied it to a government. They've applied it to, you know, um, you know, just anything you can imagine in our society, basically. And think about how totalizing this idea is. If Everything has a disparate impact and everything does have a disparate impact. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it gives government a lot of discretion. And what to go after and now they're going after you know musk for uh, for a disparate impact against you know refugees or something like yeah. that
0: and it lets them and, it lets them selectively enforce this against anyone they want to because it can be found anywhere i mean there's exactly. one scholar that that you link to you mentioned quite a bit gail uh harriott and yeah. she essentially offered money to anybody who could find an instant where disparate impact was not found then unless you have equal outcomes across the board for all categories regardless of how those categories are determined you will find disparate impact somewhere
1: Exactly. So this is sort of, yeah, this is sort of uh, taking us away from being a nation of laws. I mean, it just becomes, and you know, they can not just target people they don't like, but target things they don't like, right? They yeah. like, they like, they don't like standardized tests, I guess, because they're a way to get around the education system. You know, the, like IQ tests for hiring. I think but they they more do, so they don't
0: like it because they assume that it can be gained, uh, gained financially, that people can get test. Uh, but that's uh, yeah. It's not correct, right? They're wrong. I mean, every, and this is something that's counterintuitive to me, right? You would assume that students who are wealthy or have parents that can afford SAT tutors and standardized test tutors would score better, but then you go look at it and it essentially has no impact whatsoever. In fact, if anything, it seems to, uh, it seems to help uh, higher education discover students of lower income who happen to have natural intelligence. Like literally every study on this has yielded that result.
1: Yeah, that's right, and they haven't gone after you know standardized tests to get into college until recently. That's just become recently a cause of the left. Before that, they were fine with, and they're still fine with using uh, you know college degree to hire, and that has a disparate impact too. But nobody cares, right? Whites have more, uh, more than blacks have more, like an up college degree, especially more like Asians
0: have have more than whites. Asians, everyone's ignoring that Asians are literally destroying or are crushing whites as of particularly over the last 10, 15 years.
1: Yeah. So civil rights law basically doesn't care about that because liberals don't care about that. Not because the the law should say you should go after tests if Asians do better than whites, just as much as you go after them if blacks, you know, blacks don't do uh, don't do as well as whites. Um, But no, they don't do that. So just there's uh, you know just the degree of arbitrariness. I, I call it the skeleton key of the left. Um, you And then you have on top of disparate impact, you have affirmative action just forced on the private sector. through So executive real quick,
0: Richard, just before we get to affirmative action, there is also, and this is the Civil Rights Act. Everybody studied the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in schools. They may not have been aware of the Civil Rights Act of 1991, which seems to be more impactful uh, than a lot of people may realize. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah the Civil Rights Act of 1991 is very interesting and sort of uh it um you know there was some uh, Supreme Court decisions that started to push back on disparate impact uh the what the exactly the Civil Rights Act of 1991 is like did is very confusing and sort of uh uh you know debated by lawyers, but it's you know it's it, 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 it basically everyone agrees that it made the you know put a higher higher standard for employers trying to defend themselves um in disparate impact cases. Um, and the other thing it does is creates punitive damages before like you would sue. And you would be harmed in some way for you know an act like you didn't get your wages or something. Now you could punitive damages, so up to three hundred thousand uh, per person, for, depending on the size of the corporation. Um, for you know, you don't even have to be hurt um, to any large extent. You know, you can just the civil rights law. The civil rights laws will pay you. Um, we'll pay you for uh, the punitive damages, and you know this creates. And In more incentives, you know, the, may, the more you incentivize people to say they're discriminated against, the more likely they are to say they're discriminated against, the more HR, the more lawyers you need. Uh, yeah, it's really a vicious sort of a self-financing reinforcing cycle.
0: And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Interesting in the 1991 Civil Rights Act, kind of accelerating, or with some of the pushback to some of the overreach of 19. It, it, it was the reaction to the reaction to the overreach of 1964. Uh, moving on to affirmative action, kind of the seminal case, originally at least here was the University University of California versus Backey. Uh Judge Lewis Powell was the deciding vote there, and essentially, um, as you describe, and I think uh, astutely describe, this was kind of a, a dishonest centrist bargain in allowing for racial racial criteria to be a factor, proclaiming that constitutional and simply proclaiming that quotas weren't constitutional. And even some of the liberal justices who said, well, I guess at the end of the day, we're getting our, our preferred result here, but you might as well allow for quotas because if you allow race to be a criteria in hiring or admissions, you're going to essentially have a quota system anyways.
1: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the Bakke decision is very interesting because there were some Supreme Court justices who were conservatives who said no affirmative action, and then some who were liberals who said they wanted um they wanted you know just explicit quotas and just because it, you know the diversity rationale came to uh, be the dominant one just because uh Justice Lewis Powell uh who was the centrist uh d- decider right um and so he wrote this opinion he brings up diversity and and then diversity is really not discussed um before that in terms of uh in, in terms of college it really wasn't like a thing until the Supreme Court basically said uh this is the justification for which you can have affirmative action it's all dishonest because because um it's all you know, it's clear that what these people care about is uh the plight of African Americans. It's very interesting, you know, you had that Bakke decision in 71. Then in 2023, you have the SFFA v. Harvard. And the descent, you know, the descent is not talking about Asians. They're not talking about diversity. They're talking about uh, black people and all the disparities between whites and blacks. And, you know, and the majority and the concurring opinions point this out, too. It's like we were pretending to talk about diversity from uh, from 1978 all the way till 2023. And but nobody forgot that this is just about, you know, an idea of sort of making black people whole, uh, repra- you know, kind of re- kind of indirect reparations. Right. Um, this kind of you know white guilt or, as they would put it, social justice. Um, yeah, this, you know, this is clearly what this is about and the diversity. It was just sort of a window dressing that sort of everyone forgot about um, as soon as the Supreme Court said, "Okay, yeah, you're not you're not using that justification anymore for affirmative action.
0: Mm -hmm. And you seem to believe that the recent reversal of of Backey and uh, affirmative action by the Supreme Court is going to be very influential in fighting the in, in essentially fighting the backlash against woke in, in terms of you know and since bringing us back to a, an earlier cultural era and rolling back some of the progressive uh uh wins over the past decade
1: uh yeah i mean people are so pessimistic man. people like this Supreme Court decision came down and a lot of people are like oh you know it's not gonna matter like what's the point of even doing anything while well, you've been talking nothing. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. if you get a Supreme Court decision in your favor and just convince it doesn't matter yeah, you might I'll want to put
0: that one in your hat. You know, it might not be the the singular, might not be the magic bullet, but definitely one to build on. Okay, so we have disparate impact, we have affirmative action, um, harassment law, which I believe is most directly codified in Title Seven, or at least Title Seven is what is most utilized to uh, to prosecute uh, supposed violations uh, of harassment law. Why don't to tell us about that.
1: It's weird because it's a completely judicial invention, right? It just says you don't discriminate and people weren't thinking about the environment you created. And so at first, like even, you know, employers could ask employees for sexual favors and that wasn't considered like a violation of the civil rights act for a while. Uh, People just said, this is not, this is not sex space. It's just a guy, you know, trying to get trying to get, you know, trying to get uh, a favor from one particular employee. It's not a discriminatory action against all mm-hmm. women
0: might be some uh, other sort of violation, but it's not discrimination.
1: It's yeah, it's not the civil. It's not a civil rights act issue. Um and then the uh and then they you know the first they get you know they say no you can't actually do that that's at first in the first case you know the, the one of the first ones they say uh oh you know if the employer is bisexual like that it's that it wouldn't necessarily be discrimination because he hits on men and he hits on women right uh-huh. and, and they interesting edge interesting edge case yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you see how careful they had to be it was like such a new idea they had to find a way okay he's attracted to women um so therefore it's discrimination against against women um and so you have you know you have that and then it like you know it expands to you know stereotypes oh i expect women to you know, behave this way in the office and i expect men to behave this way right things like different uniforms you know get challenged usually you know they're they're okay you know until bostock where it became a, uh, you know the trance thing came along you know until then the eoc would go after sometimes people for having different uniforms for women and women you know the courts have uh, there's no court decision that you know said that wasn't allowed um and then you you know you have like words, right? You have sexual harassment. Uh, Severe has to be severe and pervasive, right? What's severe and pervasive? Well, I mean, you know, it's up to interpretation, but this leads to zero tolerance policy because you never know what's pervasive, right? You never know. You could say, oh, don't make jokes, but you don't know who the Eugene Volak of UCLA has made jokes. Well, and point. I think if
0: any, if any law is informed by cultural standards, the cultural standards of what's considered offensive or what someone thinks is worthy of rising to uh, taking beyond an interpersonal conflict to publicizing or trying to enact some sort of institutional punishment, I mean, that's always fluid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people just don't like you know, they don't understand that like people have all like these leftists and other people have all kinds of crazy ideas, but like, you don't have to listen to them until the law says that their ideas get to be enforced in institutions. So people just focus on the ideas. But it's like, why are like, you know, the most brittle, like, you know, emotional women and why are these like race activists, these Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson types, like, why do they have so much power? Uh it's not because, you know, they you know, it's not because for you know they have like an army behind them or necessarily they're the most convincing people in the world. It's because civil rights law favors them. I mean
0: Ooh, that's and this is where I'm going to take contention with, with you because that the the amount of power and uh, how persuasive they are and the amount of power that they wield has uh, risen and fallen so much over the past three decades. The amount of power that they uh, wielded is just uh, is unrecognizable between 1997, 2007, and 2017. Yet the laws stayed the same, generally stayed the same in the interpretations of, uh, uh, I don't want to say the interpretations of the law, the case law, uh, around these laws was generally consistent across those eras, yet the cultural standards and how, how many people fell in behind the cases of an Al Sharpton or an Angela Davis or God knows what, Who I mean, that fluctuated wildly, okay? Not a little bit. There, was not, uh, there, there were not kind of um, de minimis fluctuations in how much power these people wielded or how much they were able to uh, essentially weaponize some of the, the the degree to which they were able to weaponize these laws has fluctuated wildly. So what's your explanation for that?
1: Yeah. I mean, this isn't uh, you know a monocausal theory. I think the law is the most important aspect. And I think that it's sort of the root. That's why, you know, tense the title of the book. Um, but, you know, it's like having a state religion, right? And then like, you know, the the religiosity of the public fluctuates over time, of course. Of course it does, right? Under a theocratic regime. Um, And so, yeah, I think that there's room in my theory for other things. You know, I think there's room for sort of social media and the internet. Um, There's room for, uh, you know, just like changes within the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Um, There's room for just sort of, you know, general societal craziness like we're seeing with young people and, you know, gender confusion and uh, inability to form relationships. Yeah. I mean, we are, you know, we, society is a complex, complex thing. No Um, doubt. And so, uh, yeah, I want to get, cause we'll get back
0: to the, you know, it being monocausal and what the other causes are and also the solutions. Cause while I, I disagree with you a little bit more on the cause, I definitely agree with you on the solutions that you proposed, but I want to focus a little bit more on the law still, because these are kind of dense. And also, you know, I think people need to understand what's been un, uh, kind of hiding under the uh, in plain, hiding in plain sight or under their nose. So uh, the next one is title nine. Um if you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, Title 9 is just an incredible story and it's really a, it's a funny thing. I mean so Title Nine is just you know, first of all, Title six doesn't include sex. So Title seven includes which is employment, includes sex. Title six does not include sex. That is things that get government, you know, this is like you know, education establishments mostly, but you know anything that receives uh, federal funding can't discriminate based on race, color, blah blah blah, not sex. Title IX uh, is in uh, nineteen uh, seventy one. Um, education am- amendments uh, of that year sort of slips in under the radar. It just ad- you know it just adds uh, sex to that te- uh, for to that Title Six, um, and then uh, you know t- uh, to education, and then like it sits there for a while. And then, like, they start going crazy, like, in the you know, the 1990s and saying, you know, you have to have, like, uh, you know, this person starts with that. Florida
0: sports. State University, at makes, despite making $80 million a year from football and $40,000 a year from women's croquet, has to have uh, a women's croquet team and you can't disband it. And you have to at least give the appearance of uh, allocating similar resources between men's football and women's croquet or
1: volleyball or God knows yeah. what. And then the number of athletes have to be same. So you have to, you know, balance male and female. So what if, yeah, so what if like men want to play more sports or the, there's more interest in male sports? Uh, nobody, you know, nobody, nobody cares. I mean, it's amazing. They say, you you know, colleges, and this is not just colleges, high schools have been subject to Title IX uh, lawsuits. Um The idea is, you know, you, uh, uh, you you're you have to overcome the stereotypes that people. I mean, there's an incredible... Uh, uh, court decision from uh, the seventh circuit uh, out of Indiana for an Indiana high school. It's incredible. They say that, you know, if, the, if the local community likes boys basketball more than girls basketball uh, the school has to like fix this right? They can't yeah. make a decision yeah. on that basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have a degree of hubris in social engineering. So you have the school, you have the sports thing and, you know, there's, uh, there's articles about how funny this is. Like they will add like male practice players to a women's basketball team and count them as being <laughs> athletes. I mean, there's really funny, like women's rowing, like everyone yeah. will have a rowing program because you can just stack it with, you need so many people that you can say, okay, they're all the women are on the rowing team. I mean, it really is, it's made sports, I mean, you know, women's sports, people think trans has made a joke i mean it was it was sort of a joke before this because of title IX, um and then you have like they start importing sexual harassment law to universities and this you know and this really doesn't happen until like you know the 2000s and especially in the obama administration um, it becomes the responsibility of universities, not so just is this is and this
0: something in terms of the laws that have been uh, more contemporary and really impacted people's lives, but you might not have noticed unless you were a male college student, the parents of a male college student, or a social sciences obsessive like me and Richard, um, something called the Obama Dear Colleague Letter, uh, which essentially an Obama edict, uh, this was in 2011, that government funding would be withheld from colleges and institutions unless they adjusted their procedures in favor of the accusers in sexual assault or harassment claims. Essentially, uh, uh, essentially created all these kangaroo courts that essentially suspended any notion of basic due process for a male student who was accused of sexual harassment or sexual assault, and actually ended up and has been rolled back partially because there were so many successful lawsuits from these male students who were kicked off campus after not even getting uh, any understanding, not even being explained what the accusations were against them, getting no uh, opportunity to respond, and any other number of due process violations that can all be traced back to this Obama Dear Colleague letter.
1: Yeah, there was a series of bigger colleague letters, and they came. You know, they build on one another. Um, And yeah, I mean, the Clinton administration tried to do this near the end. The Bush administration just didn't enforce it, Um, and then it came back with a vengeance uh, during Obama. You know, the idea that like the university is sort of like an employer, right? These are adults, and it's you know, it's there to manage their sex lives and make sure young women are not harassed or uh, assaulted. And you know, the, the the people who interpret these laws were the craziest feminists. It wasn't just like. It went way beyond the whatever, you know, employment. And I think it's partly explained by what the universities are like. The universities are just so ideologically captured um, that it's just like it was just such fertile ground. And so the uh, Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education. Uh, it's just, you know, it's like, you know, they they could they could push this on education the way they could it on the private sector. And they had people who were sympathetic uh, uh, within them. And then they yeah, I mean, they you know, they basically you have these cases where it's he said she said um, about a rape allegation or even it'll be like, you know, the woman happened to be intoxicated. Everyone agrees that she was intoxicated and sort of, you know, it's nobody can remember what happened and the and the man will be kicked out of school. Right. This was very common. these through all these lawsuits, you know, it, the, no court would. You know, no court courts were not sympathetic towards this. They said this was sort of crazy. Um, And you know, the the men when they went to court, they won. I think uh, every time or practically every time.
0: It's one of the few times that the courts or the culture in the courts have actually acknowledged the progressive overreach. Like this is a po- point at which is said even you'll see even feminist writers who typically are taking the uh, uh, the side of the progressive argument in these issues even acknowledging wait a second this went way too far and was uh, becoming some kind of Kafka esque web for any male who on co- on a college campus who was accused of sexual assault.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's so it's so direct. You could see the direct, you know, connection between law and the culture. I mean, the culture of the time had been you know, there was some crazy kind of feminist things going on in, you know, early two thousands, It was everywhere. I mean, me too came a little bit after that. Um, and then the Trump administration just withdraws uh, these dear colleague letters, and you know, what do you know? There's there's no more of these tribunals, and you know, things go a little bit back to sanity. I, I'm sure that's. I'm sure there's still. I'm sure there's. You know, the, the bureaucrats didn't all get fired the next day. You could see how like these things, you know, take a take time to unwind, right? Because. They say hire all these Title IX bureaucrats. Uh, It was that direct. It was that direct Obama administration telling people, telling them what positions they had to hire and what those positions had to be responsible for. Um, And those people are still there. But at least, you know, without the backing of administration, things were better. Biden administration is trying to bring back. We'll see exactly what they do. Probably won't be as crazy as the Obama days, um, but trying to bring back something, uh, something closer to that now. Um, Through through a more uh, uh, through the real it's been
0: it's been odd to me how long it's taken them to do so. It seems that it's not really a a priority of theirs. I was when they started talking it up again, I I felt that they were going to be able to fold this one under the cover of darkness. Of anything Trump did was wrong. So in us reversing the reversal, we're right. um, Despite the fact that the public would, if they knew about what was going on, would overwhelmingly support the Trump policy on this one.
1: Yeah, that's what, you know, victory looks like. It's not the Democrats coming out and saying, oh, you know, we were wrong. We're sorry. We're we're crazy people. It's, you know, they just sort of, Back away or not go as aggressively next time because you know either they're convinced it's wrong or they're afraid of the backlash, um, and yeah, and even like so there's now they're going through the APA rulemaking process for people who don't have the legal background. That's sort of more solid than the dear colleague letters that the Obama administration sent to universities. And um, you know what's interesting is they, they there's indications that it might be even you said it's delayed. It might be more moderate than people expect. So there was one on trans athletes where they say you know in certain cases you know the trans lobby wants you know anyone any trans can play in any sport they want uh they were
0: self-identification
1: of, yes exactly and they and, and the uh proposed rules by the biden administration i think it's been reported you know it's been reported i don't know if they put them a paper yet um basically say no like yes gender identity but like you know on a, on a case-by-case basis schools can sort of decide you know they, they leave some wiggle room and the trans activists were there's a big story they were very they were very upset about that uh and so uh yeah I mean that's like a good indication of you know there's overreach and you know how things how things change anything else you know we get victories on affirmative action disparate impact. Any, anything you know look look for that it's not going to be they're going to say oh my god we were wrong and so stupid um mm-hmm. it's going to be like the policies a little more subtle then they chirp for a while uh and then they sort of they move on
0: mhm yeah, yeah should be interesting to see how that plays out so in acknowledging these laws have been in place for quite some time and that their manifestation has has evolved ebbed and flowed um what in kind of acknowledging that this recent era is a particularly is a unique aggressive zealous manifestation of all these laws um what in, in seeing how the culture intersects with these laws I and mean, where where do you see as it stands now all right because the culture uh, some people look for the backlash that they were expecting people are trying to identify are the wind shifting a lot of people uh, the, the normies will term it as are people waking up um, is there a shift in cult uh, with the mild, uh, changes in laws, or, or some of the legal pushback on affirmative action, or at least some of these laws getting dulled out because people have seen some of the overreach. Is there a cult? Is there a cultural backlash that could impact the manifestation and enforcement of these laws that that you think is useful?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that I'm just fascinated by sort of the uh, the effect of Elon Musk buying Twitter. I mean, uh, you're mm-hmm. on Twitter, I, uh, I'm on Twitter. You could feel it. You could feel the difference. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's probably liberals are sure that they don't want to pay the eight bucks to be to be boosted. And it just mm. conservatives, you know, keep getting boosted on Twitter and they feel more emboldened to say what they want and they're not likely to get kicked out of. Uh, they're not likely to get kicked off or suspended. Used to be pretty used to be pretty easy to get suspended. And now I, I feel I feel free on the website. Absolutely. Um, it's it's a great thing, and like you know, there's people have noticed that like suddenly, suddenly for the first time like ever, or as long as people can remember, conservative boycotts are working. You know, Target backs down on Pride Month. Uh, These other, you know, uh, Bud, Bud Light, which I think is sort of stupid. I'm just annoyed how much you know emphasis they put on Bud Light and how obsessed they it, are. It
0: it's is fun. interesting how that one got so much attention because also it ignores how many other brands, some of which are very working class male white male coded. Uh, engaged in ridiculous showings of strange wokery right I mean Gillette you know maybe it's a little bit more of an upscale brand but they yeah. had like a trans commercial like three years ago for some reason that didn't spur uh an overwhelming uh overwhelming backlash and boycott that essentially sunk the brand but this does uh, on bud light I mean it's inter it, it's odd and interesting how that became the lab.
1: Yeah. And even even you look at beers, there are things, yeah, the Gillette ad, you're right, was much worse. I mean, it was a much more of a feminist message. There was one Miller Lite one, which was really disgusting that came after Bud Light, where they burn all their old commercials because they show women in bikinis I because how evil believable. it was. They once had, And they have these ugly, you know, these ugly, sorry, less attractive, like, you know, masculine women like doing it. And like Bud Light, What I mean, they sent this to this trans it was it was relatively innocent i mean it wasn't even ideological it was just like dylan Mulvaney, dylan Mulvaney sort of you know gross and weird and they just lost their minds right uh, yeah uh, so, tried yeah.
0: to the, the scholarship around how these boycotts what what becomes boycottable and what doesn't also is fascinating I mean, i can't say that i necessarily have uh uh an exhaustive answer on it but it is it's kind of funny it is amusing how bud light became the one that worked for some reason
1: yeah it's just it's just still involving It's that's mm-hmm. that's sort of it's the uh uh yeah it's, it's he is that aggressive fascin- yeah. fascinates that yeah
0: <laughs> god it's obnoxious um okay so to get back and we're gonna get to the place that that we very much agree and where we do somewhat disagree here is because while I don't you know you you still believe this is not monocausal but these these laws are the origins and extremely influential in uh in kind of spurring catalyzing the woke if you would ha- I believe but I believe the great awakening in and of itself this last 7 to 10 years is so much of a departure from anything else it can't really be explained by a set of circumstances that and conditions that were in place before it the that America 2023 is so unrecognizable from 2013 as opposed from 2013 to 2003 that we have to really be looking elsewhere for the explanation um, there was one review of your, both your book and Rufo's Chris Rufo's book which attacked uh, similar topics from a slightly different angle um, that described this uh in this manner um, neither book has much to say about pivotal left liberal shifts in public consciousness and I think that's incorrect because it's not just left liberal shifts it's also sh- it's also centrist independent and non-politically affiliated shifts in public consciousness um in my f- forthcoming book and forget, forgive me i have don't have the name of the author here. I argue that the anti-racism taboo is a critical juncture that came to be expanded, weaponized, and transposed to other identities. How did Chicano morph into Latin X? Why did academics redefine bullying and trauma to enco- encompass hurty uh, words and life's di- disappointments? Neither can be explained by cultural Marxism or civil rights law. Instead, they emerge from the in- incremental evolution of a left liberal moral order. I don't think it was incremental, but once again, Tell even a liberal in 2012 about the term Latinx. They'd think you're out of your mind, okay? Tell, yep, left... Even maybe 2012, it shifted enough that they don't think you're a complete psychopath. Tell a liberal in 2008, tell a, a a a vigorous yet not completely socialist Obama 2008 voter about pronouns and bio. They're like, "What planet are you are you from? What are you talking about?" Okay. Or the notion of anti-racism, or the idea the ideas that at the time were pretty much confined to salon. Salon was the you go read Slate, right? You're a 2008 somewhat left of center liberal Obama supporter and voter. You hate George. George w. Bush, you might read Slate. None of these ideas that are now part and parcel in that Slate writers will literally call you the devil if you oppose, none of the Slate liberal writers at that time would have even fathomed the arguments around anti-racism, Ibram Kendi X, nobody was going to go pay uh, Ibram Kendi $50,000, no uh, ayahuasca-infused billionaire was going to give him $10 million. These things were unfathomable as recently as 2012. So what the hell happened?
1: Yeah, so I mean, you bring up yeah these sort of these pronouns and these you know words that have changed over time. Uh, yeah, I agree. The words that they use seem crazier. Um, the fact that you're so they're so openly anti-white, uh, LGBTQ, and you know Zer and all these weird pronouns. Um, but not
0: just the gender thing. Not just it's all also on race. I mean, the notion and as Iglesias described, I and mean, the the shift in left liberals, which I also believe shifted everybody from 2014 to two, 2019 was. Was a violent shift i don't think it
1: was incremental it, it was a, a shift in opinion now like the policies that liberals support in 2023 uh compared to 2012 i don't think are as radical as the language um, and so the, uh, you know, the, what are they trying to do, right? They're saying there are too few blacks in colleges. They're saying blacks are disproportionately arrested. Forget 2012. This was, ni- they were saying this stuff in the 1960s, uh, and 1970s, right? They didn't have, you know, trans is a new thing. Uh, that's right. But like the, you know, the idea that women are uncomfortable at work and they're being harassed and they need to have lawsuits and they need HR. Yeah. Maybe that Me Too has gone more crazy, uh, definitely more extreme. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be in a position of saying poo-pooing the culture. I don't I think I agree with Eric, the, like these academics, um, their moral reasoning or, you know, whatever passes for reasoning. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that that's a major cause. I think like they've been very good at sort of maybe bad at it like they've made a they made a rhetorical shift. And it's probably bad for them uh, because mm-hmm. the left, um, you know, it makes it more obvious how crazy they are. But mm-hmm. the policy of 2023 is not that crazy. It's not that different from 2010. What, what do, you, do you see? Major, major policy differences that like. Any oh, I mean, you look general, around and, like my god,
0: a- absolutely. You look around criminal justice, for instance, right? The notion uh, uh, the public's tolerance or what they consider to be a problematic instance of police brutality um, and what. What changes in police funding policy, the policies around uh, Chicago not allowing cops to pursue someone on foot or even what cases a local district attorney of what cases of uh, of uh, police fatalities or instances of uh, alleged police brutalities they will consider prosecuting have changed. Like uh, have uh, they do not resemble what they did? I mean, one instance in the Iglesias article that I think is informative, but also might uh, uh, carry the explanation was: um, you look at the the uh, shootings that were you know the, the cause celebrity the, the catalyst shootings of uh, either unarmed or semi armed or retreating black people, um, from two thousand fifteen to two thousand twenty. George Floyd. You look at the reaction there and what was, uh, what was demanded, uh, and sometimes implemented in terms of legal and policy change from let's call it a George Floyd incident Um, then you contrast that and John McCorder is quoted in the Iglesias piece on this Uh, Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown would have had as much impact on white thought as say Amadou Diallo did and he says the change is because of social media Amadou Diallo was abused by deliberately in a more sadistic manner by the cops than any of the the supposed uh, kind of high visibility incidents from 2015 to 2020 including George Floyd like what the cops did to Amadou Diallo was horrible
1: they're more more sensitive no, there's Needs nearly
0: that. no reaction to that there's ne- there was no protest there was not protest right it, right so you're i'm right. interested in what uh, uh and iglesias explanation is it can pretty much be chalked up to social media i'm wondering if that's your take as well
1: I agree. And I think we're getting, you know, I think, you know, you would see these videos like this Sean King guy was on Twitter. I don't know if he's still on there, but he no, was you
0: know, uh Twitter. No, no, you're right. He's not on Twitter anymore.
1: Yeah. I think he, he quit or something. Uh, yeah. But like, yeah, he would just get these videos and like these videos without any context. I remember the early 2010s, like CNN would have like around the clock coverage of, you know, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin cases, really, really wilding people up before Trump, you know, they got distracted with Trump stuff. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's true. Um, it's, you know, the same basic idea is what blacks get arrested too much. Blacks are brutalized. But yeah, police used to be, you know, Rodney King. It's funny. You watch the Rodney King video and they, you know, they, they beat the hell out of them with night uh, nightsticks. Like they're not, you know, their cops aren't doing that anymore. Liberals might say that that's good or whatever. And you're right. They, they, uh, they do protest. you know, the, the protests and the sort of the burning down of, you know, the parts of the city that that's true. Um, it's still policy-wise. I mean, they didn't defund the police. I mean, there's you know, there's, there's mm, they they stuff.
0: did they did temporarily right. They defunded and then they refunded. And this might be I can use uh, Los Angeles as a bit of a case study here. And it's not. I, I do think it's a bit of a mistake to focus too much on kind of federal level like or or state level legislation necessarily. And it could be kind of internal divisional policies, right? Because I can definitely tell you the Los Angeles police are one thing that it, it, it this is not a a law passed by the city council or the state legislature um to hey you can't arrest uh, uh this homeless person for doing this thing or you know there's there's no if uh until this homeless person draws blood you can't really arrest them. um that's an edict that's been issued down to them yeah. by by no, the higher
1: I believe it. I believe there's Hmm. been I believe there's been policy changes Uh, as far as like defunding the police. Bloomberg uh, had an article, Bloomberg Labs, I think, where they showed like no city or almost no city. They looked at a bunch of them um, actually cut funding for police. Now, maybe they did other things and made it harder for police to uh, L.A.
0: did and then quickly refunded it, which is an interesting once again, case study to track Eric Garcetti versus Karen Bass and that Eric Garcetti towards the tail end when he essentially abandoned the job and was just there to avoid getting uh, shit on by by woke activists because he wanted a job with the Biden administration defunded the police and Karen Bass, African American woman, after the backlash with an increase in crime, goes and uh, uh, gets yeah. the biggest increase in police funding in LAPD yeah. history.
1: Yeah, nothing. Yeah, I don't deny. Yeah, I don't deny that liberals are crazy on crime. I don't deny <laughs> things can change over time. Um, I don't deny that policies shift. Uh, that being said, I think the, you know, the, um, I would emphasize the revolution was uh between before the Civil Rights Act and after the Civil Rights Act going from like you know the federal government watching police and saying all the you know arrest disparities are racist and affirmative action and policing blah 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 going from that that's the world in 2010 that's the world in 1980 really going from that until uh today where it's you know slightly crazier and now they have more white training privileges and maybe they don't arrest I, I think that's a smaller change I think the revolution was uh the initial civil rights and then yeah it's it's gone worse since then Questionably, 2020 is worse worse than uh 2010 but I'd emphasize that it's the law that sort of was the uh, was the watershed uh mm-hmm. that we should be focusing on.
0: No th- fair enough and and I think that does you accurately uh, identify that that is what funnels into the solutions which we will get to in just one second but have you uh, one other idea I want to propose here I mean have you ever worked at a large corporation?
1: Uh have I ever worked at a large corporation? I worked uh no like I worked for McDonald's as like a mm-hmm. team, not as a not as like a, a suit
0: Mm-hmm. so I've I have a unique perspective because I've both worked for big corporations internally as kind of an outside advisor and I've also worked independently and the one thing that I can identify about large corporations uh, is the power of of in this era. Of middle management and it seems to be that what has changed uh, what the if we're looking at consistent factors uh, consistent variables and shifting variables over the past 10 15 years or 20 years while the the laws stayed relatively the same But the manifestation of those laws shifted is that in in the social media era in the great awakening era a court in this this definitely explains a lot of the Bud Light phenomenon. The middle managers who aren't C-level, maybe VPs, directors, whatnot, their cultural power inter- internally at these corporations has jumped exponentially. I think the New York Times wrote some article about it. It's like the uh, the third the the thirty-eight year olds that are scared of the twenty-eight year olds that work for them, or something like that. And I think that the under in in identifying the explanation for the, the current state of woke and the great awakening I think people are it, it, a lot of people think that it's some top-down thing no I think it's middle up okay that that the category of executive that is holds enough power to go implement a budget with the Dylan Mulvaney marketing program since their values are now so much different than their analog from 10 15 years ago and that the bosses the C levels are so concerned about internal uh internal strife internal mutiny or being called Called a meanie or a racist or whatnot those middle managers who are more woke are yielding uh uh exponentially more power than they used to
1: yeah i think the late millennials you know early zoomers are probably the worst worst on this um and yeah that that's right um You know but you know that shifts along with the rest of the culture so a lot of these way these people get worked up is being on twitter all the time and talking to one another and canceling. i mean as soon as the left becomes less prominent on twitter you know that starts to to go away i think there's just i think there's it's also like everyone is looking at what everyone else is doing so george floyd it was sort of crazy because everyone like it was like a you know it was like a like the cultural revolution right it just becomes infectious like everyone wants to show that they're you know that they're on the right they're on the right side um and, you know, once you and so like, yeah, that's that's important once you just sort of change social media and change the culture um, and create less of an expectation that your business is going to do. I mean, the, you know, I don't think you can underestimate like just Elon Musk personally and just like other like anti-woke people um, in Silicon Valley, like really speaking out uh, uh, against this stuff like Brian Armstrong. I think they changed the norms a little bit and, you know, the employees might be left wing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think bosses are becoming less likely to listen to them. Yeah,
0: yeah we're definitely there and I think also Netflix in uh, in rejecting employee uh, employee protests around the Dave Chappelle special I think that was another turning point here so in, now we're getting into solutions here and you definitely proposed some interesting ones so um, you've you've identified which laws are the cause of this which laws are, have been abused. Uh, which ones have experienced mission creep into spaces that were never in, never envisioned, or at least envisioned and rejected when we tried to address a very legitimate problem with Southern private businesses implementing Jim Crow and just deliberately uh, uh, deliberately discriminating against African Americans and dying, denying them service? Uh, so, what in terms of changing the laws you've you've mentioned, amending executive orders one one two four six and one one four seven eight, limiting distra- disparate impact laws? Um, what do you see as the solutions?
1: yeah exactly as you say uh amending um, or eliminating one one two four six one one four seven eight affirmative action in government contractors and affirmative action in the uh in the public sector um every single one of these things i mean it's just sort of hit the rewind button Right. On each one of these things that I uh, that I've talked about. So disparate impact, you can revisit that uh, there's a uh, there's a role for judicial clerks and judges here. There's a uh, role for conservative activists and legal scholars to sort of bring the right cases and make the arguments. Um there is, uh, you know, harassment law, same thing. You know, you can sort of find, start to like read the, bring back the First Amendment and just bring it back to, you know, for we expanded the First Amendment when it came to, uh, you know, Citizens United and as far as political speech for corporations, Uh, you know, the First Amendment has had a good, you know, it's been expanding and you know, i think in the last 20 30 years uh except in the harassment law which is just has been seen as sort of something something different um has been seen as conduct rather than words but it's it's, it's a it's a false dichotomy i mean it, a lot of the times the words are what they point to um as the as the offense uh and you know you can you can go directly for the uh uh you, you know you can go direct you can do direct stuff i mean at the state level you have dei offices being closed all over texas no Republican, no conservative no wing of the conservative movement like this stuff right um you know there's just there's a lot of energy out there and there's just so much to do and people you know the things are said they're upset about Dylan Mulvaney like that stuff can't be you know corrected with a law that can't be changed overnight um but what you're doing is you're changing institutions you're changing incentives so five years down the line 10 years down the line uh things are going to be different I mean I I feel I mean I feel positive I mean the SF of baby Harvard uh has had you know it's only been a couple months um, so we'll see, but it's like, you know, I've been optimistic about the sort of the, you know, the way that it's, uh, institutions have responded to it. Elon Musk buying Twitter. I, I said at the time, this would be important. It's been like more important and faster than I would have thought. I looked up the other day, when did Elon Musk actually buy Twitter? Because it feels like. I'm pretty five years sure the ago. takeover
0: was about a, coming up on a year, November yeah, I, 2022. I,
1: I, yeah. I looked it up. It felt like, it felt like five years ago, I mean, because I just had to, you know, I just had to see how much, how much things have changed. Yeah. Um and, you know, it's going to depend on who wins the next elections. That's a very I was on Stu Peters. Then you know, he uh, he's just say, oh, what do you do about the fact that all elections are fake? And, you know, we just have to have a new American revolution. <laughs> I don't know. That's <laughs> interesting. You think, if yeah. Yeah.
0: I'd like to get your thoughts on that, and to segment segue to some issues that you've discussed in a, in a really interesting manner uh, that are tangential to your book. Um, and you've had definitely had some thoughts on the Trump phenomenon, and obviously now that's becoming uh, uh, a lot more palpable and relevant to the 2024 election cycle than it might have felt a year ago when I felt Trump was kind of dead in the water, and then was resurrected from the dead as he usually is by his enemies with these indictments. Um, and that you've pretty much said so he was and, and leading
1: this, long. He was leading long before the uh, indictments. It was he uh, wasn't uh, dead a at the lot. The on
0: and he it was, was up by thirty, l- and then he
1: became up by fifty.
0: This is was was up by 20, and more so. And I think, and and this is and being kind of uh, intangible here is that Trump feeds off the energy, and that energy around Donald Trump before those indictments was dead. He kept on looking, he kept on being made to look foolish. He was not empowered, and those indictments resurrected him from the dead and made him the f- gave him all the ener- controversial energy and vi- uh, justification and validation for victimhood that he d- had, that was waning for him. You seem to disagree. Would like to hear your thoughts?
1: No. I I do I think you can go back and look at the polling and I remember paying attention to it at the time there was a time right after the midterms when DeSantis closed in a little bit there was a few national polls where we would like you say 1520 then DeSantis announces and this is before the indictments and Trump starts Trump starts pulling away their narrative around the time was DeSantis was sort of falling out of those his face. two you know,
0: things kind of happened at the same time though that initial that initial indictment uh, the New York indictment and DeSanti's announcing were pretty much within about a month or so
1: yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, but we—I think we did have a little bit of time of DeSantis jumping in the race. Even, but DeSantis was falling even before he jumped into the race. You know, he—he he really hit a peak after the midterms when he had a great midterm, and you know, Trump had a terrible midterm where all these people Trump liked didn't do well. Um, but yeah, I always thought. I mean, I always thought it was going to be Trump. I. I and so, yeah, and, yeah sure. Yeah,
0: no sure. recent yeah. recent developments seem to be proving out your theory, and and the, the, my theory is kind of non-provable, non-falsifiable. That if he hadn't been indicted, that this would actually be a legitimate battle between Trump and DeSantis. You believe? No, and and I think you know there's well, DeSantis, a lot of evidence yeah. to.
1: And the other thing is, Desantis knew the indictments. It's like sort of a, a, a mar, you know a stock where it's like priced in. Like Desantis knew it was coming, and they should have you know they should have planned for this. They shouldn't have kissed Trump's ass uh, for for all these years and said he was innocent of everything when they knew an indictment would come and what would happen? Oh, they would just they would just help Trump. Well, what do they think was going to happen?
0: Fair enough, but I think it put him. He, he's in a Gordian knot, an impossible situation. There was just no way. Uh, there was really no way. Um, unless there, there was no way if he did get indicted that DeSantis or any challenger that wasn't essentially Trump wasn't trying to kind of absorb as you know MAGA aligned or maybe as a VP candidate was going to be able to challenge him once those indictments hit um, but once again I, I think you know that there's no way to prove or, or falsify that claim um, but your explanation I think of why, why Republican voters do like Trump I think has definitely been proven out I know you had an interesting piece it's titled uh, DeSantis should challenge Trump to a fight in that really this kind of Uh, almost satirical masculinity and chest pounding and as you put it stupidity, obnoxiousness, vulgarity uh, on simian chest beating is what the Republican base and the Republican voters love and Trump needs to be engaged and beaten on those terms and the problem is nobody's going to engage and beat him on those terms
1: yeah and I think I agree with you that DeSantis had probably, you know, he was he was in, a, you know, Catch-22. And that's why, I mean, I've always thought that if you you, know, you go back to 2015, if you just think, assume Republican voters love Trump, you would have gotten everything right for the last eight years. He'd win the primary. They'd stick with them uh, after, you know, But George W. Bush's approval rating collapsed uh, at the end of his presidency. Never happened to Trump because Republicans uh, always stayed with him, even after January 6th. You know, he wasn't convicted. The senators were afraid uh, of convicting him, even though a lot of them, you know, it's clear wanted to and wish they could have, you know, stopped them from running. They would just wish he would go, he would go away forever. And that didn't, uh, that didn't work out. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I do think that, you know, I, I don't know, like if people like talk to a lot of Trump's not even online Twitter Trump supporters, because they're, they're more educated and articulate than a typical Trump supporter. Just the people who like Trump online are, are not representative. Um, but just like, they, they like the show. I mean, they, you know, the, the pro wrestling is popular for a reason. Jerry Springer, I mean, it's probably a dated reference. Now Jerry Springer just died, but in the 1990s, that stuff was, you know, popular for a reason. Uh, you know, reality TV, sports, people love this stuff, right? Uh, it's almost hard to believe that, you know, Trump was an entertainer and what's hard to believe that they just love an entertainer who's on their side and making them feel good and they're in, enjoying it. Right? Like, they, you know, they ask them, like, who's the most electable? And they'll say Trump. Now, is that right or wrong? People can disagree with that. But they're just answering these questions like, who's the most electable? Who's like the policy decisions based on who they have a gut, you know, uh, a positive feeling towards? And that's clearly been Trump for the last several years.
0: Yeah yeah and so what's your per, what's your uh outlook for i mean because it, it's kind of strange that trump has gotten this boost even though i think some of it is inflated i mean we're what we're 15 months away from the election i mean good lord we have a long ways to go um and the the kind of resurrection of donald trump from the i mean i, I you probably think he's less resurrected. He was always going to be in somewhat of this position. Fair enough. Um, but I mean, how does this play out? Because a, a lot of people kind of think that, oh, they suspect that they're prosecuting him because they want him to be the, uh, the the nominee because they think he's easier to beat. No, they're prosecuting him because they want to put him in jail. I mean, how does this play out if they... If, if uh, some of these trials are scheduled for for before the election, I mean, theoretically, he could be the candidate, and he can be the the Republican nominee and win the election, uh, uh the twenty twenty four election from prison. I mean, that's not a far fetched, uh, not a far fetched hypothetical here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, no, it's not. I mean, he's he's going to probably be the nominee and Biden's going to be the probably going to be the nominee. And uh, yeah, there's going to be trials uh, between uh, now and then. I mean, this idea that they pro- yeah, I think that's very convenient for Trump supporters. They're prosecuting him because they. Uh, uh, you know, they're because keep they keep him out of the office. Yeah. I mean, it's so like, it, you know, like even DeSantis, like he has to push back against that because it's like, if that's true, it's just, you're just admitting like Trump is the greatest and everything is about Trump and you just have to be with Trump to, to fight back. Uh, I think they're prosecuting him because like the classified documents case was a clear example of, of violating the law. I mean, not complying with subpoenas. You know, I think, you know, the legal system. I think, you know, people don't, Uh, you know, judges and, uh, uh, you know, prosecutors don't look kindly on that i think they're generally genuinely horrified by the uh what happened after the election um i don't know if they even think about i mean i think they probably think they help them. you know they don't i don't think liberals are like think that trump is like can't win i mean i think they know he can win um mm-hmm. but, you know they try to make they, if they wanted someone who would lose they try to make mike pence the nominee or something mm-hmm. i mean they try to make I, i'm not sure trump is less electable um oh Disney. i, I- yeah, as of today,
0: I think he's more electable. Like what what's happened over the past three to four months has surprised me a little bit. Um, I mean, the once he got indicted, I was I, I believed okay, he's he's back in the game. Um, but how much
1: and the indictments, the, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I guess also the the failures of the Biden administration that seemed to be excused through twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty two, and were kind of somewhat excused by voters in the midterms, seem no longer to be being excused. Right? It's like uh, all, all the problems, the failures, the the. the case for Joe Biden being one of the top 10 worst presidents in our nation's history, uh, I think was always there. Uh, and it's but it seems that your normie average centrist voter is now uh, catching wind of that. And it's kind of it's just strange that they caught wind of it in 2023. They didn't catch it in 2022. I'm, I'm wondering why that is.
1: Yeah. I mean, the indictments helped him in the Republican primary. They might have helped him in the general. I mean, you look at the there was just a poll that came out that had Trump plus 10 against Biden. It was Washington Post. Interesting BBC, one. And people were like, well, you know, why are you even sharing this most embarrassing? And then another one came out from uh, Harris and Harvard that had Trump plus five. Uh, and so I hadn't seen numbers like that ever before. Those are like the back to back, the two best polls I've ever seen for Trump yeah. uh, going head to head with Biden. Uh, yeah, I mean he's he's got a great shot. I mean, I think the border crisis is uh is, is hurting Biden a lot. Yeah, um and I'd like your thoughts
0: the- I'd like your thoughts on the border crisis because it seems like one of those things that's so acute and so obviously detrimental to the the current administration that how the hell could they not step in and fix it? Um it's there, there's a lot of speculation on why they seem to be encouraging and letting twenty thousand, um, kind of generally undocumented people into the country with nothing but a, a notice to come appear for your your amnesty hearing two years from now into the country. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that they're you know they're sort of uh, I you know I think that there's a humanitarian impulse on the left. I also think there's a um, you know it's like. You know, and the, I think by there's sort of divisions on what to do. You can get tough. You could also what they recently did with the Venezuelans. What they recently allowed them to work. Now a lot of the reason there uh, some of the um, immigrants coming in are burdens is because you know when you're applying for asylum, you're not allowed to work uh, legally. Um, so why don't they fix it? I think I think they're pro-migration. I mean, I think they 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 think immigration is a good thing. They think it's cruel uh, to send people back to their country. Um, and you know, I think that that's. And I I don't think that they're fully enough not to know um that it's hurting them and i you know we talked about just about the polls being better for trump this might be part of it too this is really dominating absolutely news, not just right-wing media i saw I just turned on like an nbc re- randomly and nbc was covering the the border uh, the border issue um and yeah
0: and tweeted out tweeted out by elon musk and now essentially elon's twitter account is essentially its own news service any story that he tweets out or that he brings attention to or throws that interesting reply to which he did in regards to your book now becomes part of the news cycle and and surfaced right which is is really fascinating
1: yeah and, and there was a um yeah supreme court ruled uh you know a judge halted the uh Uh, ended, uh, remained in Mexico policy. So the remain in Mexico policy, um, I, 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 I didn't follow up whether this was appealed. Um, yeah. the federal judge paused it. Right. Um, you know, uh, and it was actually a, 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 a um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Because, because this is, yeah. Because sometimes the liberals, the courts do something beyond what conservative uh what they, consider, uh, what they, uh, what they uh, you know, what the politicians are willing to do. I haven't actually, I haven't read about the uh, the decision. I'm just uh, sort of looking at it now. It seems it was like, it was, seems like it was a Republican judge. It was a mad kiss I don't know what the, maybe, maybe the Republican judges are trying to, hmm. you know trip up the obama administration um, you know who uh, trying to help uh, trump get elected i don't know i have to i have to read more uh, about this but yeah there's there's there's, a, there's a ideological things going on there is uh you know court decisions they have to deal with and you know the migrant the migrant situation i mean it's it's a recurring problem that nobody really has uh a solution to because you know people sometimes don't like the migrant people don't like uh you know, their country uh, being, um, you know, flooded with too many people at the same time, uh, you know, let's take some really harsh measures, uh, you know, you want to send back Venezuelans to Venezuela. And people don't like that either. Like people really, you know, it, 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 it's it's bad optics. Like when they tried to do the, uh, you know, the kids in cages thing. I mean, you saw the backlash to that. I think you'll see more. Uh, humanitarian pushback when Trump is in office. Now Biden, I think, has more of a free hand, but when Trump is in office, it's going to be even even harder. Uh, so yeah, this is one of those you know very difficult problems that's just going to always recur.
0: And when you talk about optics, that leads to another interesting piece that you wrote that I do think explains some of the the cultural shift. Um, that I believe explains some of the great awakening that you know some of the the, the gap between uh, the, the gap in in causality uh, a causal explanation between you and I here but you wrote a, uh, a piece called women's tears win in the marketplace of ideas and that political life and to a certain extent corporate life have been feminized with more women um, in higher echelons of corporate America and the executive class in political positions and that appeals to emotion will always win out over cold logical uh, cold logic or harsh truths and that's what we're seeing now and, and essentially Essentially, what we're seeing in culture is more reflective of those feminized uh, emotion based as opposed to logic based values. And and that's what's dominant culturally and can to a certain extent explain some of the why why the Biden, why in 2008 Barack Obama was able to say uh, a, a essentially state uh, a platform for immigration that would look like your centrist uh, sli- uh, right of center republican right now that listen you've got to have a responsible immigration policy and you can't really let everybody in but in 2023 joe biden and um the the liberal cultural vanguard says you can't do anything mean to someone from another country
1: yeah i mean you know some of these problems are i mean i think that the- i think we can handle you know, I don't think the numbers are that large if it's organized. I mean, I think you could handle the Venezuelans. We've had 500,000 uh, come That's in. It's a lot of people. It's, it's a lot of people. a lot of people. When people are... Uh... When people have babies, like people on the right don't sit there and say that's too many people. They, they usually think more population is good. Well, sure, right? but there's got to be
0: a distinction between citizens and non-citizens. And yes, I mean, it's not uh, the, the notion that, I mean, you'd obviously have to be tactful about it, that people that come from a less developed culture, less developed financially, um, there's a reason why in this to, you know, there's a reason why poor countries have higher crime and higher rates of social dysfunction in a number of different ways and that it's a sensible and legitimate Policy of a country that's more developed to uh, to yeah. want to minimize the amount of people that come there from these cultures from from people who have you know were not uh, born or not raised with the skills and values that are more in alignment or more supportive of a more developed country. I mean that's something that you had to you had to thread the needle very very carefully in expressing that opinion in 2008, but you weren't a, a, an Obama voter was allowed to express that idea in 2023. A Biden voter or someone who doesn't want to be fired. From their job cannot express that idea.
1: Well, I mean, if we're going to take that perspective, then going back to the first thing, I mean, do we worry about which Americans are uh, being born and which are not? If we're worrying about some people without the, you know, skills and the background to contribute much to American society, you know, you could start worrying about who's uh who's having kids here. I generally don't think we should do that. I think I think that, you know, uh, besides criminals and like really like the worst of the worst, uh, most people do contribute something, do contribute something or can contribute something under a. a you know, a, a healthy society which believes in markets, and you know, without civil rights law and all this other garbage that we need to uh, we need to roll back. Um, and so, yeah, I but mean, you I, still
0: have to absorb them. You still have to get. They still have to find a place to inter, to integrate into society, and that costs money. That cause that causes sacrifice of resources. And you see right now, like there's just if you can philosophically justify it, there's still practical a lot of practical fallout and harm, as you're seeing in New York, as you're seeing a lot of these big cities. So I, I, I. Even if I, even if you could say that there, you can't really tell Venez, uh, poor Venezuelans uh, not to come here, if you can't tell poor Americans to not have kids, I disagree with that. But OK, I could see the, the philosophical uh, uh, philosophical basis for that. Right. There's still very practical problems with this.
1: There, there are. And some of those practical problems are because, like, for example, people were saying Eric Adams was saying he was destroying New York City. What he wanted the Obama or the Biden administration to do is allow them to work, which they which they've now done with the Venezuelans. So a lot of times they're burdens because they're literally not allowed to work. And then if someone is literally not allowed to work, you know, what's going to happen? So we, we, you know, we have a choice. In uh, the extent to which we invite these people to contribute, or we don't, and we make them right burdens. So, do we, you uh,
0: think, and this is something that a lot of people have been speculating on, do you think that th- this is a deliberate policy in re- to fill? Uh, unskilled worker ranks in reaction to the tight labor market that was troubling employers over the course of 2022 and early 2023, in that they were trying to offer people jobs for $17, $20 an hour. They couldn't find anyone to take them. So the government essentially said, okay, well, we've got to import some people who are going to take those $17 an hour jobs.
1: Uh, if the Biden administration was going to do that, you know the bidding of big business, I think they would there, there's a lot that they would do differently. no, i I don't think I don't think that that's like a motivation. I think it's humanitarian stuff plus the inherent difficulties, plus, you know even some of the, you know, uh, you know anti-racism and things like that. Uh, the idea that big corporations are you know pulling the strings here on the Obama administration uh, or the Biden administration immigration policy,, yeah, I tend not to buy that.
0: Mm-hmm. so uh, dragging the women's tears win in the marketplace of ideas towards the cr- recent criticism of your book I think it was most pointed from the Atlantic um, and uh, I was going through the piece and not that this is at all unique in uh, liberal outlets or liberal pieces in maybe centrist outlets maybe some people consider the Atlantic centrist maybe by today's terms who knows um, and that uh, it's a lot it's very little in addressing the substance of your arguments or the book and a lot about how your arguments in the book is mean um as they put it that you are engaging in frat boy nostalgia where offensive jokes and ass grabbing were part of the uh, a part of office life um although the narrow history hanania sketches has some merit the book does not contend itself with mere history uh hanania's handful of genuine insights are marred by a slow drip of especially stupid bigotry that suffuses the suffuses the book um what are your thoughts on that criticism
1: yeah, I mean, it's you said he doesn't address the substance, but in some cases, he actually agrees with the substance. He thinks, you know, he thinks there's True. a lot to yeah. to be uh, uh, to the main argument about you know uh, origins of woke and where you know where wokeness came from. Uh, so he recognized that, but he, you know, he wants me to acknowledge, you know, first of all, that's not. I don't say that uh, like we should go back to uh 1960s gender relations. I you know, I believe in freedom of association. If people want to have the worldest corporations imaginable, um I think they should be uh free to do that. And some right. maybe some places will be, you know, have a reactionary gender So what? I'll compete them at the market. Don't do business with them. I mean correct. Like, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. And, and someone a country. boss
0: makes an a boss makes an offensive joke. It shouldn't be co- it shouldn't be grounds for a civil rights action. You just go to HR, you surface it, and the other executives then punish that executive.
1: Right, and if they don't want to, I mean, then the, the like in the, you, you're you're providing valuable work. Um, then yeah, the is going to find somewhere that. else to hire you. Exactly. That that was the solution to most of the you know most of the history of our, of our country, and you know we there were some things that were bad, but I think it was a state based discrimination that was bad. I think the freedom of association was you know has always been a, a strength of ours. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, and there's uh, you know, thing like, oh, you don't acknowledge, you know, that there's a, you know, uh, you know, uh, it, it's very weird because this is like an anti woke guy, but he does, he wants me, you know, he wants me to like explicitly acknowledge that like all the gaps uh, between black, he wants us, he says that, first of all, I believe in IQ gaps, which obviously I do. And then he corrects himself on Twitter because people point out like even you acknowledge IQ gaps because you say they're in- environmental. So how can they mm-hmm. not exist? So he does say they don't exist, but nobody, you know, but then he, he corrects that on Twitter. Um, and then he wants me to say the overwhelming scientific consensus that they're all environmental, which is BS. I mean, that, yeah. you know, you, you wish, um, but it's not even part of It's not even my argument. He just needs to hear that in order to be reassured, like the origins of gaps is not, uh, is not even discussed in the book because it's, you know, the fact that they exist is all you need to know to know how crazy civil rights law is. Right. Um, And, and he can't yeah, he you can't acknowledge you
0: can't acknowledge the accuracy of you acknowledging how crazy civil rights law is unless you're uh, undercover yeah. un- unless your true motivation and then the dog whistle I- I- the argument, which is always just so tedious and ridiculous. The only people who hear dog whistles are dogs. Is that you're really in- in- informed and animated by bigotry and then acknowledging that these c- the civil rights laws have mission creep, are being abused um, and mis- mishandled, and then all some things that are-, are bad might just not need to be corrected but through civil rights law um that really that's just a, a casual excuse for your own bigotry
1: yeah i mean you can read my i mean you could try to read minds but uh, you know, and it's the only way his I, best shot yeah it's the only way you can uh it was the only way i was expecting a review in the, you know the atlantic um or some of these places because they're uh you know, they've gone crazy. I had another another article recently, how to not get canceled. And you know, my idea was the the you know university on race, gender, sexual orientation. Um, maybe say, you know, there's been some pushback on the trans stuff, but like, you know, prestige institutions, universities, and the mainstream media, they're just they've gone insane. And this book is not for them. I mean, this book is not, you know, like if you you told me write a book to convince liberals like to the greatest extent possible, that would have been a very different book. My book is to explain to conservatives who think wokeness is bad. Like, understand that groups are not identical in every way. Like, it's sort of like it's just an assumption there. I don't, you know, I don't have to keep talking about it because, like, I don't think I'm going to convince anybody who doesn't agree, who doesn't agree with that. Um, and then take the people who I can tell the origins of folk are and then take uh, gaps in performance as real and telling them this is where it came from. This is what, this mm-hmm. is what. Right, yeah, it's, it's it's for it's for your audience. It's for uh, conservative uh, judicial clerks, congressmen, staffers. That's who's going to read the book, and those who are those who are who are going to be the ones who change civil rights law. I don't I don't think you're going to win over Democrats. So the cause you could like beat them, and you could uh, make them, you know, sort of put them on the defensive. Um, I
0: think you can you can win over some of the low information swing cat like Los Angeles Democrats who really didn't care about politics and just reflexively voted Democrat and I mean this is the if there is a sea change in Los Angeles politics in regard in response to crime and homelessness I mean this is what you're seeing a lot um, low attention low information solidly Democrat and just woke up in 2021 and were like wait what the hell just happened and didn't really know where to turn and didn't told me in 2018 when I was uh, you know screaming bloody murder about woke and this and that that I thought they thought I was exaggerating and crazy and came crawling back with their tail between their legs and like oh my god what's happened to the world in 2021 21, I think there's more persuadable that that group a uh, persuadable group is actually larger than many people may may imagine um, but you know, you were, you were, sure, I, th- I guess this is a response to, to Senator Tom Con- Cotton responding to a question about wokeness with, I don't really know what to do about it. And, uh, so you've r- written a helpful handbook, uh, in what you think does, can't, one needs to be done and two can be done. Um, and inter- you know, an interesting, uh, recent experience of yours. Um, I like to be a bit of a scholar on cancellation attempts. Um, and their failures, successes, and how people may or may not transcend cancellation attempts. You are, uh, I think, we can now safely place you in the category of those who have leveraged and transcended a cancellation attempt into greater success. Um, we'll let you get into any details you want to. Uh, you know, you want to um, acknowledge about the the cancellation attempt recently that that kind of coincided with the release of your book. But it seems like that didn't impact, if anything, it enhanced the popularity of your book and your stature as a scholar, and did not take you down at all. So interesting. To hear your experiences about that,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that you know the cancel culture—the term comes from when we had more of a monoculture where the media could say something and everybody would like cut ties with somebody. Now we have really a fragmented culture where you have the left that's as crazy as ever. You know, somebody even wants to talk to me on Twitter and they're a left-wing person like you know Matthew Glacius and their you know their uh, followers go crazy. Like, how do you dare you even talk to the person? And then you have the right, which is like really doesn't care, which sort of gets off on. Offending the lips uh, to a great extent uh, definitely doesn't like canceling people. So if like they try to cancel you, like there'll be like a rallying effect, even if people don't like what you said, um, they're definitely just seeing people who cancel or people who dox. um, It's sort of like a taboo. Um, and then, you know, like so much of like my, you know, my followers are, you know, Twitter and Substack. And yeah, I have this book uh, that's with a major publisher. And they saw that was sort of maybe the weak point. They can't get me kicked off Twitter anymore. You know, they can't get me kicked off Substack or anything they can't take away my audience. Uh, mm-hmm. But maybe they could cancel the book, but they couldn't do that, Right? the the, the publisher stayed with it. Um, and so, yeah, there's just, you know, if you're not dependent on left-wing institutions, there's just much less they can do. And you can leverage it. You know, it's a lot of people hate these people. Um, and there's an audience. And, you know, there's a, uh, uh, you know, people who will come out the woodwork to support you uh, if you're fighting back against that. So, yeah, there's reasons to be, you know, optimistic here. I mean, I think we're going to, you know, not for everything, not for the universities. I think they're sort of gone. Uh, but for the rest of us, I think the culture is getting, uh, uh you know, I think the culture is moving in a better direction.
0: Absolutely. And, and one last aspect of that and that uh, one uh, in the scholarship around cancellation, one, uh, one notion that I've kicked around a lot and that, you know, me and our mutual friend, Ethan Strauss always talk about is rule number one, don't apologize. Rule number two, don't apologize. And rule number three, don't apologize. However, you did apologize because there is a caveat to the don't apologize in the face of cancellation rule. If you actually mean it, yeah, apologize. And you yeah. are actually sincere in saying, Hey, I think I did some bad things, engaged in some bad behavior in an earlier period. I clearly no longer, that, that's clearly no longer who I am. So here is a, a, a transparent and sincere apology
1: yeah i mean yeah and so i you know i, I didn't even i didn't say the word apologize or, or i'm sorry or anything like that um you know people can inter people can inter- have interpreters apology and some people have it you know people can define whatever they want um but no you you be honest i i don't think it's a good thing to say i'm going to defend anything i did and say was good just because it's a way to own the lips if there's something that you did that you think is bad it, you know you can you can say it's bad you know, you shouldn't be canceled. You should be unpersoned forever. And there's no uh, uh, redemption. But no, you did something bad. You do something bad. And now you say now I'm doing other things and I'm saying other things. And, you know, we can we can have that discussion. Uh, so, yeah, it probably doesn't help to apologize. Sometimes it's it's necessary. Um, you know, sometimes it's like it's or at least it's necessary to um, sort of just explain like why you did this thing or why you no longer hold this belief or whatever the situation uh, may be. Uh, You don't want to fall in the trap of just being completely reactive. I have this, you know, uh, I have this, uh, you know, exact sort of template that I'm going to use and I'm going to push back. I, I, I don't think that that's, that's healthy for the discourse.
0: Yeah. Uh, interesting uh, to, to play off your experiences there. And once again, the one caveat to the never apologize rule, if you actually mean it, then you can apologize and hopefully you will transcend and leverage the cancellation attempt to greater success as Richard has. Um, Richard, thank you so much for this and for joining us here today. I think it's going to shed a lot of light on the how, why, and what of woke that you know so many people out there um, are still a little confused by. Uh, they're a little bit stuck in the haze and they're trying to, you know, even if they don't, don't believe that they are a foot soldier in the uh, um, in the, the woe counter anti woe counter revolution. That they want to still understand these things to have a better grasp of it in their day to day life. Um, so very much thank you for that. Please, if you tell us about your book, where to find it, and where to find you
1: yeah origins of woke so if people are watching on video i have a copy right here you can get it on amazon or really anywhere uh you buy books um you know it's available a hard copy you can get a kindle you can get a you can get an audiobook uh people can find me i'm easy to find uh, just my name or is my sub stack uh, that's where i release articles and then i'm on twitter um, or x um also my handle is just my name it's pretty easy to find i not a not a not having invested a lot in marketing but that makes everything easier
0: The ideas are colorful enough. The handle doesn't need to be. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Richard, thank you once again. All
1: right. Thanks, Matt.
0: I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Thanks once again so much, everybody. This is The Prevailing Narrative.